It's been four or five years since I met James Lambden, founder and owner of Analog Shift, a vintage watch dealer that started online but is now stocking modern pieces as well and also works alongside shops such as Watches of Switzerland. Per usual, we connected over Instagram and have since met up several times in New York City when I've been in town. James was also a founding member of Red Bar Crew, a watch meetup in the New York City area that has grown to an astounding number of members and followers, all of which contribute to bolstering contributions to nonprofits around their local area. James is clearly a watch guy, but he's also a car guy and a car rider. He's definitely no stranger to a good time, and our opening banter was meant for me to simply get levels for this recording, but instead I chose to leave it in as an added bonus of what can only be considered a glimpse into the personality that is James. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Yeah. Are, you as, are you as hungover as you thought you'd be? Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> Good day yesterday? Mm. I've had some long days <clears throat> recently, and I'm still a little bit jet-lagged. There's something about the three-hour... Uh, California. I, it really screws with me. Like, I can do seven-hour difference, no problem, and I'm pretty straightened out in like a day or so. Three-hour difference, if I'm, if I'm on the West Coast for five days, it takes me a week plus to get back. I think it's just like... I think it's like incremental, right? You know what's crazy is I'm... This trip is the first trip I have not taken a red eye to come to New York. Mm. That's my secret sauce. Don't take a red eye. No, do take do a take red, a red eye. eye. It has but totally screwed me up this year. I can't really sleep on a plane. So but that first night, I just pushed through it on the so first then, day. Then you get here and, and you're then tired I just crash and, that night. So that's my move in Geneva because I always take an overnight flight to Geneva. And if you push through the first day, it's hard. You can make it. But if you push through the first day, you'll sleep like a baby that first night and then you're on track. And then, yeah, I, so get it. I didn't do that this week. And totally this is also it. the longest I've ever spent in New York. Yeah. Usually I go for four days. It's usually a weekend trip, like yeah, a Friday yeah. to Monday. Yeah. Red eye Thursday night. Yeah. This week I flew Saturday all day and it's an eight day trip. Today's day seven. Yeah. And so are you, are you leaving tomorrow or Sunday? Tomorrow. Nice. Yeah. So like this, you miss this, your wife. I do miss my wife. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's I, I weird really about getting a little her. older and a little closer. I mean, in the early days of Analog Shift, I'd travel so much. Yeah. And I think I knew I had to marry her when at some point along the way, I'm like, oh my God, I, really I miss, miss her. her. Yeah. I got to get home. Yeah. Plus, I yeah. got a dog now too. And when I'm, you're out with your boys and you're like, I don't want that next drink. I want to go see my girlfriend. Yeah. You know it's special. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, well, James, welcome to the podcast, my man. Thank you so much. Uh, welcome to New York. Glad you're here. Thank you so much. Always good to spend some time at the Analog Shift office. Totally. I apologize for any street noise that's about to happen. As I mentioned, we had to move downstairs during a, an elevator renovation, so uh, hopefully you'll get the ambiance with the fire trucks and taxi cabs. Yeah, no big deal. Um, well, let's talk about a little bit uh, of your background. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Vermont. Actually, uh, I grew up in, in White River Junction, Vermont. I was born and raised halfway up on the right side of Vermont, as, uh, as people ask where it is geographically, right on the border of New Hampshire. Um, grew up there. I was there until college, went to college in, in western Massachusetts for a few years and then moved up to southern Maine, where I lived for another f- I don't know, five years or so before moving to New York. Sweet. And what was childhood like up there? What'd your parents do? It's cold and hard. <laughs> Uphill both ways. Uphill in the snow. Both, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it was a great way to grow up, man. You know, it, it was uh, 
not terribly rural, but you didn't have to travel too far to, to get out into the sticks for sure. Um, fairly, you know, uh, you know, middle class kind of upbringing. You know, we had to chop and split and stack and burn firewood to to heat the house at the, in the winter time, so the electrical you know bill didn't go through the roof. But uh, it was a it was a great childhood. It was a lot of uh, I was I was a different you know sort of mindset back then. I was all about outdoors, and you wouldn't know it today by the by the beer gut. But used to be fairly athletic, and you know spent my uh, summers playing in the in the forts in the woods and hiking and overnight you know backpacking trips up in the the White Mountains, the Green Mountains, and oh, cool uh, skiing in the in the winter time. And you know life was great. What'd your folks do? Uh, my dad's been a, a serial entrepreneur. Primarily in the uh, sort of anything to do with sustainable land management, uh, biofuels, saving the planet. I'm very proud of him. Uh, done all kinds of good things and uh, always has that optimism, uh, which, which is really inspirational. Uh, my mother's a, a, a career educator. She's been a seventh grade science teacher pretty much her whole life. Um, she's probably going to retire in about a year, which I think is long overdue. Nice. Uh, but yeah. I'm trying to rack my brain. What is even discussed at seventh grade science? Well, you know, her thing is meteorology. Okay. Um, her claim to fame is that uh, she inspired one of the, the big personalities on the Weather Channel, who was a seventh grader with her sometime in the 80s, I believe. Really? Yeah. Um, but uh, that's her passion is, is weather. But, you know, she is definitely a green thumb, hippie environmentalist, uh, you know, went to Groovy UV and... Uh, you know, as uh, again, that's what brought my my father and her together is a uh, you know love of environment and and the planet. So they're in the right place. You know, I I think so. They they've been living in Maine now since I went to college, which was in two thousand one, I guess. Uh, yeah, so they're they're living a good life up there in sleepy, beautiful Southern Maine. It's kind of like Vermont, but it has an ocean. Yeah, are they so they're near the water? Yeah, uh, not not on the water, but about a mile in. Gotcha. Yep. I got a lot of. Little little piece of land that abuts a, a preserve, so they've got a, a big backyard, you know, with uh, a lot of trees and wildlife, and that's what they do. I'm sure that's beautiful up it there. Is. It's a it's a good pace of life up there too. You mentioned college. Where'd you go? Uh, well, have you ever heard of Bard College? I have heard of Bard I, I didn't, College. I didn't go there. Um, <laughs> I went to a, a small division that's uh, peripherally related to Bard. At the time, it was known as Simon's Rock College of Bard. It's now known as Bard College at Simon's Rock, but it's essentially a, uh, a small vegan commune uh, in the Berkshires of, of Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and I was sort of in the minority for being, you know, white, straight, and carnivorous, but uh, <laughs> they're, they're, the school is the only accredited uh, early college uh, in the United States, so I did two years of high school and uh, took a year off. I, I just wanted to work and um, wasn't really into authority at that point in my life either right so uh, i end up either. going yeah. the operative word <laughs> right <laughs> either and uh so i went to college there uh in lieu of what should have been my senior year uh and i did two years there which is what most people do and then transfer and instead of doing a, a direct transfer i took a semester off which lasted about five years <laughs> and uh during that time i moved to maine for a while and, and just worked uh, actually in outdoor equipment and apparel I worked for uh, Eastern Mountain Sports. Oh yeah, uh, in yeah. Patagonia. Uh, That's a big outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a great uh, it was a great way to never go outside, but to help other people get rigged to go outside. So that's the challenge when you when you love the outdoors, don't work in the outdoor business because you don't get to do it. 
but I had a lot of fun. It was a great way to experience my first sort of career in, in retail management and so on. And then, uh, you know, and then I moved to New York. Got it. So what were the jobs you were doing in high school? You said you wanted basically not to go to school and you just wanted to work. Yeah, I mean, my, my first job, I think, was as a cashier at, you know, Staples uh, or, or something. Whoever would hire me uh, just to get out of the house and make some money to put put some upgrades into my car, pretty much. Right. What were you driving back then? Uh, I still have it, actually. I still have my first car. I've probably had close to 30 cars since then, but I still have the first. It was a... Uh, 87 BMW 535iS, yeah, E28 body, yeah. I learned to drive stick on a 5 Series. See, it's just... Early like, 80s. It's still my favorite car in the world. It's just, it's the old trope of putting a car on instead of getting into a car. I think it holds no truer for me than that thing. I, I just love that thing. And I think the odometer stopped about 10 years ago at 215,000 miles, but uh, she's a little worse for wear after 15 years of being in a barn, but, uh, I'm going to do a restoration on that one next. Okay. And then, uh, and then, and then I started, and then I started, uh, in uh, Eastern mountain sports. I think it, I mean, I might've been even 15 with a worker's permit or, or 16. I'm not sure. sure. Early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My first job was in a bike shop, but it Sounds was like right. at 15. Right. Probably needed a permit. Right. Yeah, yeah. I don't. It was a slightly different I time. Think, and yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember if my parents signed a piece of paper or not. <laughs> I honestly don't remember. Yeah. You moved to New York. So what were you doing in New York when you first got here? Yeah. So I actually, um, you know, I, I'm very proud to say uh, that uh, I moved to New York without a job, and that is either the stupidest thing you can do, or the ballsiest, or somewhere in between. And I don't know what it was for me, but. I had an idea of what I wanted to do, and uh, I came here and decided to do it, and I, it worked. Uh, I've actually moved to New York twice without a job, so <laughs> I think I'd put that at the top of my resume. Uh, moved to New York twice without a job, survived. What, what took you away? Uh, I, left, uh, I left, boy, 2010 or 11 due to a, a couple uh, challenging family things at home, and uh, I think maybe some general malaise with my old career and wanted to sort of go on walkabout and, and rejigger. And, and ultimately that's what uh, brought me to where I am today and doing what I do today. But my first, my first go around in New York, which uh, lasted about seven years was working in the automotive industry. So I came here and my first gig was as a, basically a brand ambassador for Mini Cooper USA. Oh, sweet. Yeah. So what did that encompass? Well, you know, ultimately I worked at the dealer level. However, uh, I worked at BMW uh, NYC, which is a BMW North America owned factory showroom. So while it sort of looks, I think, to the consumer public like I was a car salesman, I didn't get paid commission. Uh, I got paid a salary to help people buy cars. Wow. And in 2006 and, uh, and on... I mean, Mini Coopers were just about the hottest thing in the city. There was a line at the door, so to speak, and people came in. We took them on test drives, and then we ordered them their car. And I helped them pick, you know, what interiors and which engine and spent a lot of time doing um, more ambassadorial kind of things like taking clients on, on drives and making pizza runs to, to Stamford on Sunday morning and uh, doing a lot of overnight trips. And it was a, a big community of Mini Cooper uh, owners, enthusiasts, and, and that sort of had peripherals into the BMW culture and, and all the uh, other brands as well. But, you know, the Mini Cooper community was sort of coming into its own at that time. And I just had a lot of fun, a That's lot awesome. of fun doing that. And I did that for 
about five years. Uh, it, was just, it was a great time. I was uh, young. It was in my early 20s. I was making a bunch of money, meeting a lot of great people. Where were you living? Uh, I, was, I started living in Hell's Kitchen um, and uh, then bounced around Upper Manhattan, Upper West Side, Harlem, Washington Heights. Is that where the dealership was? The dealership is actually almost completely due west from our current location. It's on West 57th Street uh, and 11th Avenue. Okay, yeah, yeah, because yeah. there was a Mercedes the, dealership over which there. Which is a few blocks point. down. Yeah. So most of the dealers, in the old days, I mean, they're almost all gone now. I mean, the Ferrari dealership is two, two blocks up. But in the old days, there were uh, BMW and Mercedes dealerships right here on Park Avenue. Yeah, I was going to say it was on Park. That's mostly gone. Um, mm-hmm. But most of the car dealerships in New York are right on 11th Avenue. Right. Yep. Interesting. BMW is, I believe, the northernmost of, yeah, it is. It's the northernmost. So if you go south from 57th Street, you've got Benz and Jag and Land Rover and everybody else. Porsche. Yeah. So then you, you worked there, obviously. Then you moved away. You yeah. were well, gone. After, after BMW, I, I, left, I left BMW only in search of a greater uh, title. I mean, mm-hmm. frankly, it was such a great company to work for that no one ever left. And as I got a little bit uh, more experienced and a little older, I was really seeking additional responsibility and challenge. And uh, I ended up leaving to chase a title uh, and became the uh, pre-owned manager for an Audi dealership uh, up in Eastchester. So I did the reverse commute uh, for about uh, about half a month, half a half a year or so. Made a bunch of money, and it was just a horrible job. Um, and then actually came back to the city and ran Volkswagen uh, Manhattan for probably only two or three months until I realized that I had such an amazing experience working in this little microcosm for Mini Cooper that most of the rest of the industry is just is da- downhill from there. downhill. So I ended up uh, quitting that job uh, roughly about the time I was having some, some sort of family crises and crises at home. Um, and so I decided to take a leave of absence from New York and, and get my head on straight and spend some time with family and whatnot. And I left for about six months uh, I also went to Egypt in the middle of, of Arab Spring. Oh, wow. Uh, during that time, just get some, I think, much-needed perspective on life and getting a little older and, and whatnot. And I was gone for about six months. In uh, Egypt? You were in well, I was in Egypt months? for about a month. And okay. then uh, I spent several months back up in Maine. And, I, you know, I was sort of vacillating between trying to reacquaint myself with a slower pace of life uh, versus whether you know deciding whether or not I wanted to, you know, come back here. And ultimately, you know, six or eight weeks into trying to figure out what to do with myself, I realized that New York desperately needed me. So, and by <laughs> that, I mean, did not need me at all, but I needed it desperately. So uh, worked for the next few months to try and figure out how I, how, what I was going to do and how I was going to come back. And then I moved here uh, for the second time without a job. Uh, moved back. I'd been trying to uh, explore options in the watch industry, which I'd been interested in for some time. And in those days, it was quite simply, you couldn't work in watches until you'd already worked in watches. And so I kept hearing, you know, oh, you clearly know what you're talking about. And you've got luxury sales experience and you're passionate, but, you know, go work for somebody else and then give us a call. And I said, oh, so it's one of those. And uh, with some inspiration from some, some great people in the industry who I count amongst my friends today, um, I was inspired to just do my own thing. And uh, that's when I, I started Analog Shift in I guess it was summer of uh, 2012. What was that kind of upstart process like? Like what was early days of analog shift? Well, I I think it was an interesting time, you know, looking back, it's hard to believe that it was, you know, seven or eight years ago now, but 
Instagram was just beginning to, to come into its own. And I, I had never been on Facebook or MySpace or any of that stuff. I wasn't really into the uh, social the, media the social media community. But Instagram was interesting to me, uh, particularly for enthusiast communities, because there was no status update or who you were dating or, or you know, checking in at Squarespace or whatever that was to like tell everybody what bar you're at. It was just like, oh, here's a cool thing. Right. It was it was more like interest based based for sure. Like as opposed yeah. to like really. It's like and if other people like it, you just tapped it. Yeah. And if not, that was it. You didn't have to comment. You didn't have to nothing. Scroll. Nothing. Just like look at all this shiny cool shit. And watches, as I'm sure you know, are one of the largest sub communities on Instagram, and it's really been that way since the beginning. Um, so that was happening. Um, I drew inspiration from what was happening in the industry, most notably Hodinkee. Uh, worn and wound had just had just launched and I had you know I'd bought this domain name because um, I knew I wanted to do something pertaining to my my real interest in analog and whether that was cars or watches or both and whether it was going to be editorial or com- commerce or both I didn't quite know but I knew that I wanted to do something um, I'd also been inspired by my friend Bradley Price uh, who'd launched Autodromo so there was this sort of micro boutique brand thing happening and and uh you know thomas from crown and buckle had launched this amazing platform for strap shopping and i was just feeling this inspiration uh but was still thinking about getting into the industry uh, you know working for someone and it just i kept hearing that same thing so really i was uh i was out to lunch with with ben Clymer, uh the founder of hodinky one day and, and he and i uh, go a ways back and I think I was just sort of bitching about how difficult it was to get a job and asking him how the hell he did it. And, uh, you know, really, he just said, you know, man, I know you've been trying to do this for a while, but you know what you're talking about. Why don't you go do it for yourself? Just do it. Just do it. And I think maybe that's all I needed to hear uh, because, you know, 24 hours later, I cashed out my retirement and, and you know, started building Analog Shift. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I was very fortunate. I had moved back and was uh, renting a room from this guy uh, who was sort of peripherally interested in watches as well. Very sartorial. Great, uh, great guy named Aaron Kleiner. And, you know, he said, so, how, you know, how's it going with the job search? And par- partially because he was wondering whether I was going to be able to keep paying rent. Right. And, uh, you know, I told him, I said, I think I'm going to I think I'm going to do this watch thing. And he said the most amazing thing. He said, you know, here's all my money. I'll invest. Yeah, yeah. And and so... Uh, Sorry, I'm just I'm picking yeah, you, my your, jaw your off jaw the floor. Dropped. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, it was an amazing thing. And, and he, uh, he invested uh, early on, became my partner. And we launched... We went live, uh, so to speak. I think it was Halloween of 2012, which was actually the same time that Hurricane Sandy hit. And it, which was fun because we actually sold a lot of watches our first day in business... And we were unable to ship them for about a week because all of the FedEx was down on the east, on the, you know, in the tri-state area. So where, where did you get your inventory at the time? Well, I mean, in the early days, it was all about hustling. Um, I spent an awful lot of time running around New York, um, certainly picking through the Diamond District, which is just really the dregs of humanity. Um, you know, buying at estate sales and auctions and eBay and through the forums uh, gradually over the years, this has changed, and most of my inventory comes to me these days. Um, it's like Christmas every day in my office. Boxes come from all over the world. I've been very fortunate to have cultivated a very enthusiastic uh, 
collector and client community and who entrust us with with this stuff. So we buy watches and we can sign watches from collectors all over the world. And that's where the best shit comes from. So how do, how does that process happen exactly? Like, obviously you're at a point now where you probably have a grasp of what your collectors and customers own. Mm. So do you ever reach out based on the knowledge of like, are you ever on their Instagram page and say, Hey man, I didn't know you own this. If you ever want to sell it, let me For know. Sure. I mean, I think a, lo- a big part of our business is helping uh, people find the watches they're looking for. I certainly have a, I guess I have a pretty good uh, idea of what's out there and who's got what, but you know, I, I think the, it's always interesting that I, I always fancy myself part-time treasure hunter and part-time storyteller. Um, I never consider myself a salesman and maybe that's just cause I got it out of my system at a young age, but I don't, I don't really like selling shit. Uh, it's a bit of a cliche, uh, but I really love helping people buy stuff. Yeah, I totally understand that sentiment. You know, I, I am not, you know, I mean, to the extent that you don't have to be motivated by money, I'm not. Um, I certainly enjoy what, what money can bring you, and you, you need it to buy these shiny things, not to mention putting a roof over your head and paying uh, your rent and, and keeping your staff, uh, you know, housed and fed. But, uh, you know, I, I don't really care about the money side, and whether I uh, close a deal for $400 or $400,000, I feel the same. I really do, and and I just really love watches, and I love the history and the development and the design and the sort of romanticism that comes with these old things in particular. And so, you know, we do a lot of the high-end stuff behind the scenes. We do a lot of brokering. We do a lot of location service. We, of course, keep an inventory here. Much of it is online, but not all of it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, a, it's sort of, we do a lot of different things here. Um, maybe we're not great about telling people what we do behind the scenes, but uh, you know, we do, we do the heavy stuff too. Uh, I just wanted analog shift to be a little bit more of an accessible uh, to everyone kind of brand. You know, my idea was with analog shift is very simple, was to be the, the brand name in vintage. And there are some absolutely excellent dealers in this uh, community, many of whom I would happily recommend to any of my clients or friends. Um, but very few of them have a brand name built around what they're doing. It's really, it's normally, you know, one guy or maybe a guy and a partner who are doing a great business. Uh, I wanted to build something that would outlast me. I wanted to create uh, a way to, to defragment a very fragmented industry. Because the days of guys on, on Fifth Avenue with a trench coat full of watches are not that long ago. I, I saw that when I moved here. I had a guy tell me that he had Rolexes on Spring Street the other day. Well, there you go. And when, when people ask me where I get my watches, I always say Canal. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> or, sorry, yeah, it was Canal, not canal Spring. Street. Yeah, 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 it was Canal. Well, anywhere. Right really. outside the subway, of course. Yeah, but, you know, it, it, there's a very old school mentality that is uh, still around. It's dying a slow death. But, you know, the, the old school dealer mentality... Um, is to be elitist, it's to be exclusive, but sort of snarky and a little uncomfortable. There are still places in this town that you have to be buzzed in through a double door, and they won't let you out until you buy something or give them, you know, a urine sample. They're just absolutely (laughs) old school, horrible people. And the industry and the marketplace and the community have moved past that. And if we've played any small role in, in sort of changing the conversation to one of, uh, you know, a little bit more transparency and authenticity than I would say mission accomplished. How do you go about um, giving people advice without stepping on toes, so to speak, as far as coming to grips with making a purchase that they don't really know what they're buying? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I that's a great question. I, I think it's just being ourselves. Um, I'm very fortunate that Analog Shift is not just me. I have a team of very passionate, very authentic people who can speak to their own interests and their own tastes. I think there's sort of conventional wisdom that Analog Shift as a brand espouses, and um, we probably tell every new client who walks in the similar things in terms of what our advice is or would be. Uh, we don't do hard sales here. Every every person who's ever come to work for me, I've made it very clear that if they ever feel the need to push on a sale, then that's, that's not the transaction that's they not need the to transaction be a part we of. Need or want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this is. I think that we're luxury with a lowercase L. You know, it's luxurious to be able to buy these things. It's luxurious uh, to afford them. It's luxurious to um, have the time to to dig into these histories and stories and little anecdotes and, and get emotional and romanticized about them. But we don't do white glove here. There isn't a watch in this in this shop or in the vault that I won't happily let you put on and play with, and that's what they're there for. Um, we don't do champagne and red carpets. We do you know blue jeans and whiskey, uh, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, in terms of the wisdom or the, the, the advice, um, I think it's just been distilled uh, to me and, and to my team through many, many years of collecting and, and being part of this industry is um, it's sort of three things, actually. I tell almost every new person who walks in here whether or not they're looking to make a purchase immediately or just gathering knowledge, and it's um, by the seller. I mean, you've all heard that before, but it is so important. Um, you want to trust who you're buying the watch from. Um, you want to trust that they're going to have your back, that they're going to... Uh, fix a problem if there is one or stand behind it uh, or at least you need to know where they sleep so you can find them right but, you know the, <laughs> uh, the risk of buying from some fly-by-night guy or you know somebody on ebay or or now these days there's it seems that everybody on instagram is sort of partial dealer these days but um by the seller then the next advice is uh, don't uh don't sacrifice on condition and condition to be clear, does not mean that you need to buy a watch with perfect condition or mint condition or new old stock condition or unpolished even. It just means that whatever your personal preferences are for uh, for condition, don't come down off of that. Yeah, don't sacrifice your own values. Exactly. Or like what, what's important to you. Whatever is important to you, whether it's you know those unpolished bevels or whether it, uh, it means new old stock or whether it means you want tropical or, or you know on and on and on. Whatever those values are, hold to it. Otherwise, you will probably regret it or, or have second thoughts later. And the third thing to do uh, sounds self-serving, but I will tell you, I do it myself. Pay too much for the watch. As long as you meet those first two criteria, the, the final step is if you're buying something great from somebody you trust, you're probably not going to get it at market value. Pay too much. Now, you have to decide for yourself what that means. Does that mean... 5% over market or 20. That's a very personal decision. Of course, you have to be comfortable with it. But if you meet those first two criteria, the third should be a no-brainer. Buy the watch. And by the time you're done wondering whether or not you overpaid, it'll probably be worth more. Right. What, I can't remember the, the phrase the uh, about price being long forgotten after yeah, something uh, like this that. satisfaction or I, something. I do I it I myself. Remember. I mean, truly the last two heavy-duty vintage Rolexes I bought for myself, I bought at retail prices. And when I tell people that, they look at me sideways like, All right, shouldn't you be stealing these things out of you know estates and barns? And 
And I was like, well, occasionally. I mean, I do this professionally every day, and there have been some things that I've been able to find at, at really great values uh, in the past. But truly, the, the GMT I'm wearing on my wrist, I bought from another colleague at retail. Because he, he said, James, look at it. I, I can't give you a deal on this. You know I'm going to get all the money. And as soon as I put it up, I said, you're damn right. I'll take it. Right. And, now, what, uh, are you, what are you wearing? I'd say... Uh, <clears throat> It's about a, I guess, 1964-ish uh, gilt dial, 1675 GMT Master. So for those who don't know, what is a gilt dial? Gilt dial uh, basically refers to having a gold printing on the dial. That's literally all it means, gilted gilt printing. Um, but Rolexes are known for having glossy gilt dials. So this one is very shiny. And uh, when I, GMT Master is my favorite uh, vintage Rolex. And probably uh will, will surprise some people but i'm i might be the only vintage dealer in the world who doesn't live eat and breathe exclusively rolex or rolex and paddock um i like a lot of cool stuff i'm i'm really into a lot of the more obscure stuff as well which is i think partially how we uh well, partially how we're known uh, at least on in the social media world for not just posting rolexes uh with that said i do collect gmts i think they're just an incredibly useful watch i love how thin they are compared to Submariners. Um, the extra time zone function is really useful for me. I travel a lot. I use them. Um, and they're very versatile. They're cool in every material and steel and two-tone and gold and root beer and black and glossy and matte and Pepsi and Coke and black and blueberry and root beer and nipple <laughs> dial and maxi dial and on Jubilee and Oyster and Presidential. They are so cool and so versatile. And you can really sort of make a GMT your own. Whereas I feel with sort of a, a steel submariner, it's like you, you better look like a steel submariner. Right. You know, an oyster bracelet with a black bezel and that's it. Yeah. Uh, certainly respect them, but I'm more interested by GMTs myself. Sure. Um, so when I, when I went looking for a glossy gilt GMT, my only real requirement was that I could see my reflection in full color in the dial. And that's what I was able to do here. Just a flawless dial and that was, uh, that was the, the reason for this one. Well, going back to your statement of condition, right? Yeah. You know? I mean, but, you know, it, it, it has matched hands. I have no problem with that. It's disclosed. Uh, there's a lot of sort of little tidbits of wisdom regarding words like unpolished and original and uh, correct and authentic that, you know, we could spend uh, days here drinking whiskey and I can share all kinds of, you know, opinions on all those things. But at the end of the day, you know, we're not saving lives here. And I think there's a certain amount of you know, uh, seriousness that has uh, clouded the minds of, of collectors. And, you know, in the early days of watch collecting for me, the, the wisdom was, and this was before they were worth anything, mind you, it's going back almost 20 years. You know, everyone just said, buy with your heart and you'll always be happy. Right, exactly. And what a beautiful sentiment. The reality is that now that these things are a lot more expensive, you need to think with your head a little bit. Um, but... The idea of, of loving it first, you know, is really, I think, the most important one. No, absolutely. So what are some of the most popular questions, most common questions that, that you get? Like, Can when, I get a birth year watch? Yeah, that's, that's number one, huh? Does it have box and papers? Um, yeah, I mean, why doesn't it, why, why is it worn? Because well, it's 40 years old. Right. <laughs> People ask that, really? Well, I mean, look, it, it's... Uh, I think what's exciting about this community is that it's rapidly growing. You know, we're not talking to the same 11 uh, watch geeks on the, on the forums and, and who hang out at, the, you know, at, a, at a bar once a month to, to talk about old watches that nobody cares about. Not at all. 
vintage watches are an incredibly popular uh, and and continually growing community. I mean, I think Hodinkee has had a huge effect on that, and look how mainstream their publication has become, as well as regular coverage in in mainstream media. I mean, I've I've seen reports that uh, can, several reports that suggest that vintage watches are the third largest non-traditional investment category. So you have art at the very top, but then you have wine and cars and watches. I mean, so the investment angle is really beginning to tick up and nobody can dispute that values in vintage watches have been skyrocketing. Wine is number two. Wine is number two followed by cars and then it's actually a pretty substantial gap between cars and watches, which to me only says that there's huge opportunity to grow. So as you have this community growing, the need to share this knowledge, even the simple things, like what does unpolished actually mean? Well, unpolished usually means beat to shit. Especially that's, if it's that's 40 what years old. Means. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's very, you know, new old stock is different, but unpolished usually means that it's, it's pretty worn, you know, and I think that that's uh, a cool thing to, to tell somebody for the first time because they hear these words. They hear unpolished, fat, font, kissing, four, Bart Simpson, meters first, you know, and they don't really know what it means. They just see that that's what they're supposed to buy. Right. And I, I have a certain amount of uh, enjoyment that comes from unpacking each one of those things and explaining and maybe burdening our client with too much knowledge, but then watching them and helping them go down that rabbit hole and, and figure out what it is that they really want. To me, perhaps unlike the traditional vintage watch dealer, uh, you know, shtick, um, a well-educated client is my best client. Well, I was about to say, like, if you have somebody who's pretty green coming in here and then you arm them with a ton of knowledge or at least vocabulary that they never heard before, they are likely that to walk would out send with, me with giant eyes, totally concerned, wondering what the hell they're doing. I got a lot of work to do before yeah. I pull the trigger on this thing, yeah. that whole thing. So, but I love that because that's me. You know, I, I love learning about these things. I don't like the word expert. You know, I specialize in a number of things, but to, you know, I'm not an expert. I don't know very many experts anyway. I don't like that word because there there is no college course on learning about vintage watches. So much of what we do, there's no knowledge. There's no records. So we're, we're figuring it out. Um, you know, batch manufacturing, the idea that, you know, it really wasn't until the 80s that, you know, brands like Rolex really started to streamline their production to such an extent that you could say, well, what year was that watch made? And no. But before that, dials and hands and cases and bracelets and movements and case backs were all made in batches, in many cases, by different vendors, by different suppliers. They were thrown into batches, they were thrown into baskets, and they were assembled as needed to fill orders. Right. So birth year is misleading because you might have a case that has a, has a marking from 71 and a serial on a movement that, you know, puts it somewhere around 72 and then it was you know, delivered to the, the dealer in 73 and sold in 76. What year is the watch? doesn't matter. Is it a great watch? Yeah. Um, and yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I really prefer that our clients know these things so that they can be better informed. To me, defragmenting the industry means, I think, creating a universal basis of knowledge that, that people can learn from and, and make educated decisions based on as opposed to that older mentality which is like we've got the thing do you want it 
Right. What's the What's the average time it takes then from introduction to purchase? Well, it depends. It, you know, it, it really depends for newer clients. I think that um, it can it can be. You know, sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes they just say, you know what? All I needed to know was that you know what you're talking about. And what would you recommend based on what I have, you know, interest in, budget for, and, you know, out the door? Other times I end up, uh, you know, getting into, you know, a weeks or even months long ongoing discussion about this, that, or the other thing. And that's fine, too. Um, Again, my, my business is one that is about shared passion. And while we move a lot of product and we have overhead and we have uh, salespeople and all of that, I think more than anything, what differentiates us visually to the consumer public is uh, are probably our descriptions on, on our website. You know, we're very verbose, maybe sometimes too verbose in our product listings. We have, you know, 500 to 1,000 word descriptions. It's not just year, case, condition, serial, what does it include, here's the price. You know, we were one of the first vintage watch dealers to offer e-commerce. That's, I don't know if we were the first, but definitely in the, in the leading uh, edge. Um, and I think what, what really set us apart was our photography and our, our descriptions, telling these stories, helping people uh, not only understand the perils and pitfalls of collecting vintage, but maybe, uh, you know, helping them understand what was going on in the world when the watch was made. You know, the GMT master has one of my favorite stories. You know, imagine a, wor- imagine a world in which a nonstop flight from New York to London or Paris was a brand new thing. This is our grandparents' generation. Sure. The world just became smaller. I mean, I'm, I'm actually getting goosebumps as I think about this because we live in, a, in, a, in an age today where we can go on our phone and activate a camera in a city anywhere in the world and see in real time what's going on there. But in the 1950s, you know, the, the, the war had just been won 10 years ago. The world was safe. We're now having this massive technological innovation. We went from flying, you know, wooden airplanes at the beginning of the war, and now we're going to the moon in the near future. We're, we're flying jets where you're crossing three time zones before you touch down, and you need a watch that will tell the pilot what time it is at destination and departure. I, I love that. I love that. And the idea that a mechanical device was necessary because you're not in the digital age yet. You're still 20 years away from the digital age. So you're having this rapid technological innovation. The world's becoming a smaller place, but you still need a, a mechanical device, an analog device to go with you. And I don't know. I, I just... That's so cool to me. Yeah, it's fantastic. And then let alone the aesthetics of it. It's still beautiful. And so many watches take cues from those watches. You know, Uh, I think the word icon is really overused. um, But it's applicable. Watch design, but it's absolutely applicable uh, for certain things. And the the original GMT Master uh, 6542 and then into the 1675 is one of those icons for sure. So something like a 1675 or those early GMTs are really cost prohibitive for a lot of people these days. What would you recommend being like a great first vintage watch? Well, I mean, I I like all kinds of things. Um, I'm one of, I think maybe only a few people left who still of, of certainly in my age bracket that have any interest in collecting pre-war American watches. So I, I think that 
Art Deco watches from brands like Hamilton and Waltham and Elgin and Gruen and, and so on are magnificent. Um, you have to understand that before the Second World War, America was a leading producer of high-quality mechanical timepieces, as was England. Um, both industries were really just completely you know, shredded by the war effort where all of these skilled craftsmen had to go and start building guns and bombs and aircraft and tanks for the war effort. Uh, Switzerland did not, uh, so that <laughs> they pulled ahead after the war. But, you know, there are some amazing mechanical watches from pre-war which can be had for, you know, a fraction of the cost of anything from Switzerland. So, for example, how much would something like that go for? Hundreds. Hundreds of hundreds dollars. Of dollars maybe not thousands. For, for, for something really magnificent and solid gold, maybe a few thousand bucks um, in generalizations here. But they're small, and they're a little bit dressy, so not everybody likes that. Um, also, I, I collect date justs. I think that vintage date justs, especially four- and five-digit tritium uh, date justs, are just great value, you know, three, four, five, maybe up to six, 7,000, depending on which dial and whatnot. These are great watches that have true vintage design aesthetic. Uh, the 36 millimeters, they're infinitely wearable. You can put it on a bracelet. You can put it on a strap. You can dress it up. You can put it on nylon and wear it as a, a sporty summer thing. I mean, absolutely great watch. I'm a huge fan of Universal Genève Pole Router for the same reason. Also a watch that actually had an aviation background. We just found a new route to Scandinavia. We're going to fly over the North Pole. Amazing. Set around the edge. You needed an anti-magnetic watch. And a young Gerald Genta uh, was tasked with, with designing the case. Just awesome. Awesome. Um, and then, you know, if you want something sporty, there are, you know, infinite options. If you, you know, if you want to go with Rolex and you want to have that design language, there's sort of this neo-vintage thing happening uh, where a lot of people, myself included for the longest time, sort of yeah, had a subjective cutoff of maybe late 70s, early 80s for, you know, having that matte dial tritium thing. You know, there's all the rest of the 80s and early 90s up until about 97 in some models where they're still using tritium. And tritium ages and creates patina and in a way that Superluminova probably never will. I'm probably not going to last 12,000 years for the Superluminova to die off, so I don't know what's going to happen then. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, exactly. But, you know, some of that uh, later 80s stuff and, and 90s stuff uh, reference 16700, 16710s, for the GMT, as well as early Tritium 14060 Submariners and 16570 Explorer 2s. And I could just start rattling off reference numbers. But the idea is that uh, glossy dial, but with Tritium indices, and possibly on certain models, even acrylic crystals still, uh, can really give an amazing uh, vintage vibe on a relative, relatively contemporary wristwatch. Yeah, sure. At a, at a lower price point, but that's not going to last forever either. What was your first watch, personally? Well, I do have this memory of, and I think I've always liked things. So, you know, remember my first pocket knife. I remember my first watch. I think it was like a National Geographic Junior Explorer thing. I remember it was like a mail-away, you know, membership thing. It took, you know, forever to get. It was probably like three weeks, but... When you're a kid, time has different meaning. 100%. <laughs> it was yellow. You got nothing but time. Nothing so but time. time. It was is yellow. Forever. It had a blue rubber strap and a red buckle. And I remember the best thing about it was that it, it had a light. It wasn't even an LED. It was like a little, you know, I don't know what it was. It was a bulb, incandescent right. bulb. Like <laughs> right. It's yeah. a pre-Indiglo days. Uh, and it was waterproof, or so they claimed. 
I'm pretty sure it did not survive the first bath. Or that incandescent bulb didn't. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, you know, every once in a while, I just uh, I troll eBay and just like punch in words. I've never found it. I've never found the same watch, but I'm I will buy one if I can ever find one. I, it was dirt cheap. It was it was a three dollar watch, but right. uh, that was my first watch. And then in you know middle school, high school, I wore Timex. I had an uh, Expedition, uh, Iron Man, that kind of thing. Definitely had a Casio calculator watch in third grade. I tried to cheat at math class with that, but the the, the steel case back was of such low quality it gave my wrist a rash so i had to i remember my dad painting the back of the case back with nail polish so that i could wear it oh like a clear coat or something yeah yeah yeah. oh wow because it was it was just a metal with i've i've never would have thought to do that well it happens actually and um there are uh, certain uh, there's a there's a a really cool guy who's uh making band liners which are these sort of um these these sticky pads you can put on the inside of a strap to, to protect a strap or on the case back so for exactly these reasons, people have allergies to different materials and also keeps them from getting destroyed by sweat. Um, I wish I had had that in the third grade. I wouldn't have had to paint it with nail polish. But uh, And then in college, um, you know, I think I was still fancying myself a bit more of an athletic, outdoorsy guy and totally got swept up by the Luminox Navy SEAL thing. And so I got one of those when I got my associate's degree. I had three or four of those over the years. And then my, my grandfather passed away, and uh, I inherited some of his watches, which really became the inspiration to go down the vintage uh, rabbit hole. Um, I've talked at length before about my love for Doxa, but um, the first vintage watch I bought for myself was a Seiko. Um, Seiko 6105 uh, diving watch, and I, uh, I still have it. It was a disaster. Bought it on eBay, refinished dial, refinished hands. Total mess. Spent. But did it look good? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It looked like a million bucks. <laughs> like a million bucks. Uh, still have it. Kept it as a little token of, of memory and also as what not to do. Yeah. That's a lesson in what not to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. I later lost the crown and had to source a replacement crown. The correct replacement crown cost me twice what I paid for the watch. <laughs> Of course it did. <laughs> yeah. So what were the watches your grandfather passed on? You know, it's, it's a strange story. I actually didn't get a full look at the collection. Um, I, I spent, I actually moved in with my grandmother a couple months after he passed. And so a lot of his stuff uh, I, I have. I have more than my fair share of his, uh, you know, ephemera and pipe collection and lighters and hats and uh, musical instruments and some some war souvenirs, um, but for whatever reason, my grandmother decided that the first thing she wanted to offload were the watches, and so during the um, memorial service, everybody, you know, all the family came in from out of town, and she pulled out his watch collection and just let all the men in the family have have their pick. Have their pick. I happened to not be there because I was at work, oh, so no. I actually got last pick. Of the watches. So I actually don't know what the extent of his watch collection was. I do know that my father, who is the eldest son, uh, got a great watch, uh, which I will, you know, have as my own someday. It was a uh, Movado HS360 Daytron chronograph, which has a Zenith El Primero movement in it. Oh, cool. It's a really cool 38 millimeter cushion case chrono on original, uh, you know, sort of a multi-link, almost rice bead-like bracelet, blue with silver sub-registers. Absolutely love the watch. Uh, I'll wear that on my wedding day. 
I don't know that I've ever seen a Movado chronograph. It's really neat. I'll show you a picture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Check it out. Movado uh, HS360 Daytron chronograph. Yeah, great movement too. Great movement, and you know, uh, you know, it's got an El Primero caliber 3019 inside it. Uh, to give you an idea, uh, you know, El Primero A386, good ones around twenty thousand plus. This watch, you can get the nicest one in the world for you know four or five, six thousand bucks. So it's a great value. Uh, it was my grandfather's though, so it's you know priceless. Priceless. Yep. Um, my my uncle uh, inherited a time only manual wind ultra thin yellow gold Omega. Um, Beautiful. Prob- early early mid fifties. Um, with an engraving on it, which I, I just discovered this uh, last year. He brought it, and my uncle called me and said, you know, James, I probably should have come to you a long time ago. <laughs> I was going to say, late you in know, the game. This was, this was almost 15 years ago that my grandfather died, and he said, you know, I had a local guy trying to fix this for me, and then it occurred to me that I should talk to my nephew, who does this for a living. But can you fix this watch? It was your grandfather's. I said, please, send it to me right now. <laughs> Is it 34 millimeter? Yeah, like 34, 35 millimeter. Very simple. Um... And it has an engraving on the case back. And I, I mean, this, I love that this stuff still turns up. You know, my grandfather's or not, there's still these great stories. And it just says on the case back, 10 feet tall, which is an old colloquialism for being on top of the world. And so I have no doubt that this watch was to commemorate something very special in his life. And I don't know whether what that could have been. I don't know whether it was, uh, you know, his, his first marriage or perhaps even the birth of of my dad, uh, who was born in 53. It's roughly that era. I will never know. Um, unfortunately, there's no one really around to, to shed any light on that, but that adds... Your grandmother's not... Uh, she's still in- with us, but she's pretty elderly and doesn't... Uh, that actually um, predates her. Uh, she's oh, she I was, see. Uh, second, second wife. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's extra special, though. Yeah, really cool. And then, you know, I know there were some Seikos and a whole bunch of weird things. I ended up getting a... Um, Victorinox diving computer, uh, which I'm very confident he never, ever wore. Uh, but he liked, uh, as I do, uh, to commemorate moments in time with a, an object or a talisman to, to sort of uh, take home and remember, uh, whether that was art or a piece of wardrobe or a watch. I'm, fairly, I'm, sure, I, I can, I'm sure he was on a cruise or something and was like, oh, this is, this is the thing I'm going to take back from from this. And it's great to know too that your uncle kept it and didn't offload it himself for oh, money yeah. or anything like that. Like, you know, that's done so often by people that don't appreciate these things. That's and right. then the stories vanish. Yeah. I mean, well, within the family at least. That's right. That's right. Um, so that's really cool that he kept it. Even though this week's episode is featuring Analog Shift, who's also a watch dealer, uh, this week's episode is brought to you by Passion Fine Jewelry, located in Solana Beach, California. Owners Tim and Jana Jackson welcome you into their living room-like store, carrying a wide range of independent watches and a variety of fine jewelry. Tim's GIA certified, and they also have a goldsmith in-house as part of their staff. Uh, You can visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information, and if you're ever in Southern California, please do make it a point to visit the store. You can also find a wealth of information via Tim's blog, independentintime.com. Uh, and of course, like every episode, it's also brought to you by Standard H. It's standard-h.com is the website. And that's where you'll find our online shop providing branded merchandise and other ways you can support uh, the podcast. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening and back to my conversation with James. 
I know you were early days Red Bar crew too. What was uh, what was that beginning like? Yeah, so I actually met Adam Craniotis a long, long time ago. Um, I met him because I, I hosted my own watch gathering. Oh, man, years before I started this professionally, probably 2008 or 2009, something like that. So about 10 years ago. I was just a watch enthusiast working in cars in New York, uh, regular on the forums, and realized that I was having these digital conversations with a whole bunch of people who uh, lived in New York. So I said, why not just get a beer and yeah. play with watches? And Let's meet up. It was kind of a new concept, uh, actually. But uh, I ended up hosting a gathering in, in Midtown and had about a dozen people come, and Craniotis was one of them. And we hit it off, and he had said, you know, I'm, I'm sort of starting to do this, so you're not the only one. I said, oh, that's cool. Keep me posted. And then promptly didn't talk to him for years and, you know, went down, uh, kept working in cars, and uh, watches took a little bit of a, a backseat for a few years there. But when I came back into watches and started doing it professionally and doing a little bit of journalism on the side, I, I ran into him again, and we, you know, remembered each other, and he said, you know, that thing that I was starting up, it's a real thing now. You should come. And so that was uh, probably 2012. And again, Red Bar, uh, Instagram was really taking off. And all of a sudden, Instagram is now part of the Red Bar gathering. And all of a sudden, people all around the world are, hey, can we do our own Red Bar? And it, it went viral. Uh, and, now, and there were all of a sudden, you know, a dozen or two dozen groups around the country and around the world who were hosting Red Bar. It had nothing to do with it, where they met or, or how often. It just the idea of watch collectors getting together and playing with watches and having a few too many drinks and getting to know one another over our shared obsession. Um, so somewhere along the line there, I, I, I sat down with Adam and I said, you really got something going here. Do you want to do anything with it? He said, you know, I've been thinking about that. And, and so we, we started hashing it out and decided... Well, you know, we don't really want to make a business out of this. This is our love. We don't want to monetize it. Yeah, that was kind of my next question. Like, is it a money-making entity or is it still well, just yes, kind yes of Well, yes and no. What we ultimately decided to do, we, we actually uh, we brought in a, a, another partner, uh, Kathleen McGivney, who's our CEO, and frankly, the, the brains of the operation, because uh, God knows Adam and I can't get anything done. <laughs> um, Thank God for women, right? Yeah, definitely. 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 <laughs> um, and we, we all talked about it, and what we decided we wanted to do was to launch a non-for-profit. Unfortunately, in the state of New York, that's a near impossibility, and it takes years and years of uh, bureaucratic paperwork and all of that. So what we did was we founded the Red Bar Group LLC. It is technically a for-profit enterprise. Okay. However, our mission statement is to support charitable, you know, uh, all kinds of charitable things. So what we did was we founded a fund, which is run by... A 501c3. So the Red Bar Fund is essentially our mission statement. Uh, we, we do have overhead. We have offices. We have travel expenses. We, you know, we pay our own road to Basel and SIHH, and we do events all around the country and internationally. So you know, it's a for-profit enterprise. I've never taken a dime out. Um, and Adam and Kathleen, uh, you know, Adam does it full-time. Uh, Kathleen does it part-time. But you know, we're not we're not making real money off of this for sure. Um, it goes into overhead, travel expenses, and the rest goes to, to charity. 
Um, what very, are some of those organizations you guys have donated to? Uh, a number of different a uh, number of different things. I think is is really what it comes down to. We our our biggest thing that we just did was uh, we designed a watch with Oris, the Oris Diver sixty five uh, Red Bar Limited Edition. Great looking watch. Thank too. you so much. Thank you. Uh, that was a really wonderful project, and uh, we've we've gotten fifty thousand dollars from Oris uh, due to the proceeds of that. They all went to the fund. That's awesome. And those funds are going to be distributed to local uh, chapter-designated chapter, uh, charities in their communities. So basically every chapter that had members buy these watches will get a portion of that so they can put it to whatever charity they like. Um, but these things range from, from, from human interest things to environmental causes to veterans affairs to uh, animals and, and, you know, all kinds of things. We, we prefer to... We're, we're sort of a grassroots community, and we prefer to put that money into grassroots types of charities uh, as opposed to giving it to large, you know, large causes. We'll have a little bit more impact on a, on a local level. What type of uh, time allocation is that for you these days? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of the silent partner. Uh, there's a, a large number of Red Bar members even here in New York who don't know that I'm involved. I don't, I don't hide it, uh, but I also... Uh, sort of stay behind the scenes a little bit. Um, Adam is very much the the face, if not the mouth, uh, of Red Bar. And as well, I he's great. I've actually never met him, but just like, oh, you're so fortunate. <laughs> he's a degenerate. Um, and Kathleen's, as I mentioned, is really the brains. They do most of the travel. They do most of the events. Um, I get to as many as I can, but I've got my hands full with uh, with this company, and then some of my journalist stuff as well. So I, as much as I can, I'm certainly involved weekly, um, but not daily. So as you've grown Analog Shift, what has that growth been like? You were in, I think the first time we met was, was it like a co-work space? Yeah, WeWork. Yeah, oh, that wasn't a WeWork, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't remember where it was, but like Midtown East yeah, or something Midtown like East. that. And yeah, Midtown um, I mean, pretty substantial, man. Uh, when, I, when I launched this company with my friend Aaron in, in 2012, uh, it was a shoebox full of watches in a sublet apartment in a crack house in Harlem. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. Wow. Um, then we got a, a two-person we work, and then we got a three-person we work, and then we got a nine-person we work, and then we got a nine-person and a three-person we work, and then we said, "Man, why are we doing this month-to-month thing? We're not going anywhere." So we uh, we got a, a really cool two-floor uh, boutique penthouse uh, in this building, as you've seen, uh, which has been our base of operations for a little over two years. And then, as I mentioned, we had to move downstairs uh, just a couple months ago while they do some renovations and repairs and whatnot to the building. But, you know, we, we went from it being uh, me and with some, some help from, from Aaron and, and a few others to having a, a, you know, a robust team here as well as partners in, in other cities and some retail partners as well. So it's, it's become a much larger operation than it once was. Sure. So, so what's the staff count up to these days? Um, I think we're about six, you know, uh, roughly. Uh, we, we did launch a publication in 2017. We brought some people in for that. Um, I think we had some some challenges with the user experience, and uh, we'd like to come back to doing editorial, but ultimately shifted, which is uh, what we called it, was designed to be a, a bi-weekly digital magazine. Great concept, universally positive feedback. We love doing it. Uh, it's very hard to work with digital publishing. Um, 
less than a week after we launched it, all of the rules changed for the Apple Store, and we had to scramble to make it work on the latest you know, patch up. I mean, like the analog part of analog shift is very real for me. <laughs> so all the digital element, uh, I mean, I'm totally out of my league. So re- require younger, more digitally minded folks to help with that. <laughs> I can tune a carburetor, but don't ask me to like figure out Shopify. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what is uh, kind of your opinion on the current state of the market? Uh, everybody talks about bubbles and things like that, but you know, bubble, no bubble. Yeah. What's your opinion? I mean, vintage watches as a category are not a bubble. It is a universally, uh, rising tide. Um, are there bubbles within the vintage watch market? A hundred percent. Uh, I think we've seen it, uh, with Daytona's. I think we've seen it with, um, you know, some, some smaller brands that sort of had a, you know, a little, little run up uh, due to Instagram or something. Things like Anacar, great watches, but there was this huge run up because Instagram decided they were cool, and they are cool. But all of a sudden, private sellers are buying and trading these things for way over what dealers or auction houses would ever spend. When how does how does Instagram determine that? You or you're there, just meaning alive. the people? It's alive. Instagram is alive. Those <laughs> those hashtags are living, breathing <laughs> organisms. It's a living, breathing thing. I mean. <laughs> Uh, you know, between WhatsApp groups and blogs and forums and Instagram, you know, the, the industry is so dynamic today. And that's what I would, that's the word I would use. It's dynamic. And regardless of what the industry pundits will say and what the exports from Switzerland are or not, or what's happening with limited availabilities with your favorite Swiss brands or what's happening at, with vintage prices for Rolex or Paddock or Hoyer or Omega, I think we all need to take a step back and realize that at no point in human history have this many people cared about mechanical watches. Absolutely. And that is fucking great. Yeah. And there is no sign of that interest slowing down or shrinking in any way, shape, or form. So, uh, how does that apply to vintage and bubble? I mean, it's dynamic. Things are up and down. Generally speaking, I, I really strongly believe that the entire... Uh, vintage watch community and marketplace is just ever expanding but in a changing and grow and growth heavy period you're bound to have swings and you know all kinds of interesting things happen but i'm very confident that watches vintage watches mechanical vintage watches as a category are going nowhere but up um and then it's also important to recognize that we're still not dealing with two major consumer groups ethnic com- consumer groups and that is the Chinese and the Indians who have uh, cultural hangups on buying used things but that's beginning to change and all experts are pointing towards that being a generational shift as well Um, I think there's a very strong likelihood that in the coming years the floodgates will open into those marketplaces and now we're talking about an even more global community and demand and they aren't making more vintage watches so that sort of brings us to today, right? With analog shift, you're obviously selling a slew of vintage stuff, but then you've also brought in the likes of Bremont. Mm-hmm. You've got in, you mentioned Bradley from Autodromo. Yeah. What was the impetus behind bringing in modern pieces? Yeah. I mean, our, we have relationships with a number of contemporary brands, most of whom are on the, on the independent side. We, uh, we launched a, a subsidiary brand called Con- uh, Contrapont 
a few years ago, which means counterpoint. And it's quite literally the counterpoint to these old things, which are often iconic vintage designs, classical designs. And so many of the modern independents are, are truly avant-garde. And what's fascinating to me was I noticed how many vintage enthusiasts were also collecting modern avant-garde independence. And I drew a direct line in my head between the emotional story, the limited nature, the handcrafted, the experience, the romanticism, and found that there's, it's the same mindset. So I have so many collector friends who collect the, the classics and then these bonkers fucking things from Dave Bethune or, or Kari or, or whomever. And we started working you know, with a number of them um, and representing them here in New York City. So we work with Fiona Kruger, we work with Chapek, we work with Armin Strom. We have a great relationship with Bremont. Uh, I think it's one of the most authentic uh, companies in terms of the inspiration and the just desire to make cool shit. What what kind of production do they do? I mean, I'm, I'm familiar around, with the I brand. Think they probably make around 10,000 watches a year, something like that. Okay. But, uh, you know, they've had some, some shade thrown at them for some, some marketing gaffes in the, in the past, but I'll tell you straight up, they make a killer watch they're built to tank standards. I had a client who accidentally sent his through the wash. All right. These things are ejected like from air washing machine, like a wash dry cycle. Okay. There is not a watch on a planet that's allowed that, that, that should survive that. This is exceedingly bounced around hot temperatures. Dry. Survived. Didn't need anything. It was unbelievable. Uh, I'm just trying to wrap my head. Like I'm just like, how does this even happen? (laughs) My my point is, in a pocket or whatever, they're doing two cool things. One, they make a great product at a reasonable price point. They've got a cool story. They don't try to be anything they're not. But also, they have a real commitment to bringing watchmaking back to England on a large scale. Uh, They're opening a new facility in Henley. Um, They're they're really bringing large scale production back to England. And you know, of course, they've had help from the Swiss. And of course, they've uh, had subcontracted work and whatnot, but you know Nick and Giles English are just two of the most interesting people I, I know in the industry. I think they do great work, and uh, they make a great uh, product that is a good alternative to a vintage watch. So you know people say, okay, I just bought my vintage Submariner. What can't I do with it? And I said, don't go swimming with it. You know, not because you can't make it waterproof, but because if it did, if it did fail, it's irreplaceable. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I say so. If you want to go. Go swimming, buy a $300 Seiko, or buy one of these if you want something a little bit more bomber. So that's the relationship with, with Bremont. Um, Auto Dromo, uh, Bradley and I go way back. Um, yeah, how'd you guys meet? We met at a auction preview at Bonhams uh, for, uh, for Arno Haslinger's Hoyer collection. Ben Clymer was hosting a preview. I met Bradley, I think, in the elevator at Bonhams. And Ben said, do you guys know each other? And uh, I said, we, we, we do now. <laughs> right. and, uh, and, and Bradley was running a blog back then called Automobiliac, which was really a very, well, kind of like Standard H, actually. It was really sort of a very curated and elevated thinking on design and automotive culture. And I knew what it was. And he, Bradley was actually surprised that uh, I knew what it was. I don't think it ever got super big. Yeah, it still hits me sometimes when people right? are like, yeah. oh, I know, I, I know what standard that is. H, right? And I know I'm like, what that is. We've never met before. Yeah. <laughs> and so Bradley was in the sort of the final year before launching Autodromo, and he asked Ben and I to sort of come in and, and give him some feedback, which is what we did. And, you know, from that day forward, we're, 
you know, we've been really close friends and that's awesome. When his line got to the point where he started looking for retail partners, uh, it just made sense to have his collection available here in New York. And he's using Japanese movements, right? He's using all kinds of different stuff. Okay. Um, he's doing some really interesting stuff. He uses Swiss, he uses Japanese, he uses full mechanical, he uses mecha quartz. You know, but his his product is probably the most overthought micro brand. I'm talking about packaging. I'm talking about the manuals. I mean, it is so brilliantly over-engineered and designed that for the price point, I just don't think there's anything that competes. And what's his production like? Do you know? I don't. Okay. I don't. Thousands just, for so, sure. So people understand micro brands and sort of the independence versus the million watches that Rolex provides, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, you know, he's, he doesn't, he's not owned by anyone. Yeah. You know, he owns the thing and he does it all himself and uh, he and his wife are uh, the team. And I just, that's authenticity. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's awesome. Um, you kind of alluded to it with like, you know, the, I'll just use the term drought, right? The Rolex drought that's mm. going on today, quote unquote drought. What are your thoughts on the drought? It's fascinating. You know, there's, there's a drought going on for Rolex and Paddock and everybody's talking about it and it's a fascinating thing and it's not the same story. I only have my own opinions on the matter. So nothing about what I'm about to say is fact, but if a brand like Paddock wanted to limit production of steel pieces because they're trying to push clients into buying gold pieces. That makes sense. Doesn't make the same sense for Rolex because their, their business model is totally different. They are in many ways a not-for-profit company. They don't really care. If they make 5,000 more sub steel Submariners this year than they made last year, there will be demand for 5,001. If they make it, they will sell. There's some suggestion that they're limiting production due to a, you know, upcoming financial downturn, which may or may not happen, by the way. Uh, you know, I, th I think the tendency is you can actually will that kind of thing into existence. But I'm not confident that that's it because even during an economic downturn, Rolex is still going to sell all the watches they have. Um, I think they're looking for control. I think that there's a lot of gray market stuff still out there. I think they're looking to maintain and manage their brand's uh, image and propriety and be able to make sure that you know their watches aren't getting shoved out the back door and they've closed more doors than they've opened you know, in terms of their retail partners. I think that Rolex is looking to maintain control of their brand to the utmost extent. Unfortunately, that's coming at the expense of an increasingly uh, demanding consumer public who wants their product. And it's pissing people off. Yeah, I was about to say, it's turning people away. It, this is not going to last forever. And good for AP and anybody else that's, you know, cashing well, in so on Well, so AP is an interesting story because they're also closing doors and they're bringing all of their distribution sort of in-house as well. So, as is, uh, you know, Richard Mill, um, with very few exceptions and certain key strategic partners. But the challenge there is that these brands don't really know how to run retail. It's, that's a new business for them. Their entire business model since day one has been make a product, sell it at wholesale, support their their retailers, and do after sales. But well, and ninety percent of Rolex stores are are like licensees or, or you know. I think that's going to change. Yeah, that's my prediction. Yeah, um, there will be a time where we all laugh about the drought of 
2019. I laugh now, frankly. Um, yeah, I mean, it is it is absurd the, the some of the prices that these watches are getting uh, secondary market value, and you know, Rolex doesn't make anything from that. So that's a little extreme and a little absurd, for sure. They make a great watch. They have a great product. Uh, there are a few brands as interesting to explore as Rolex. I mean, there's probably not another brand in the world that operates the way Rolex operates. And it's fascinating. And it's, it's really, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, actually, how they do business. But uh, It's there so are, behind the curtain, you know? It is. It is. Um, which is interesting because the whole industry is coming out from behind the curtain. And that's been one of the greatest challenges um, for, for the Swiss in general has been just how much the whole conversation has changed in the last 10 years. The Swiss watchmaking industry was always about uh, trying to maintain some exclusive luxury and mystery. And then you have you know, blogs like Hodinkee who are throwing back the curtain and shining the spotlight on how it works and at first the Swiss are very, they push back and then they slowly come to realize that this is to their benefit. And if they tell their story with authenticity, they can actually add value. But watches as luxury for the sake of luxury doesn't fly anymore. Not to a greater consumer public. So maybe you've got to change your margin a little bit or change your strategy a little bit or close some doors and control the, the messaging and control the retail all of this is part of that dynamic market thing. And, I mean, I, I can't think of a, a more interesting time to be in watches and to be into collecting watches than right now. There is so much cool shit happening. Well, and then also, too, with the growth of information at your fingertips, you know, not just Instagram, but, but like the Hodinkis and the blogs and the content. There's so much content. that. Well, I mean, there's some great content. You know, five years ago, it was really Hodinki and a blog to watch. Today, you've got amazing conversations happening through Worn and Wound, what they're doing, Watchinista, uh, which is going global, Revolution. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. they're killing it. Yep. As well as peripheral coverage from, from, honestly, from people like yourself. Yeah, I was going to say, there's from, tons of podcasts now. From, um, you know, getting more and more watch content into the GQs and Wall Street Journals and Forbes and Bloomberg's and New York Times of the world, as well as a resurgence in publications uh, for print, you know, and, uh, you know, Gear Patrol puts out a great magazine with a lot of watch content. Um, and then you have coverage in the car space. You know, what's fa you know as a car enthusiast... Uh, Petrolicious is doing watch coverage and and uh, Instagram Porsche community is now half watches <laughs> you know? and there's always been a overlapping Venn diagram of car watch enthusiasm but you know never more than today and that's just keeps that keeps growing so speaking of cars you have obviously displayed uh, some articles and magazines of your own that you've written and stuff can we talk about that a little bit yeah absolutely how, so how did you get into writing about cars? Was that just a natural progression oh, from working dumb luck BMW or um, no? I, you know, it's funny. I, I think I'm trying to remember how it all started. There was a publication. I think it's long dead. Uh, it was called uh, Driven by Urban Daddy, and it sounds like a well, it sounds like something it's not. But uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I 
I started doing some writing and, and watch content, and I was th- I was pitched a few. I was totally a freelancer. I was launching Analog Shift, um, but a friend of mine was the editor of that project, and he said, "Hey, do you want to do some car stuff and watch stuff?" And I said, "Yeah." And uh, that's evolved to the point where I, I don't do too much uh, car stuff anymore, but I like to keep one little pinky toe in it. Um, in when you do, it looks a lot of fun. I got to be honest with you. I, I pretty much just take the track time. Uh, in things like Ferraris. Yeah, it's not so bad. <laughs> it's not so bad. Although I had an amazing experience with Mazda Motorsports uh, late last year. I, I got a chance to... Uh, Really spend some quality time with the MX-5 Global Championship, you know, spec Miata. That was a that was a hoot up at Monticello Motor Club. Now that's a uh, private barrel, club, right? Yeah, it's a private club, but yeah. um, it's just beautiful track and uh, great people up there. And there's something very rewarding about throwing a fully caged Miata around a racetrack, you know, for hours on end and really getting comfortable with the car. Well, I think they're the number one most raced street legal car in I'm, the world, I'm, right? I'm 100% sure you're right. Um, but yeah, I've been very fortunate also to develop a great relationship with uh, with brands like Cadillac and with uh, Mazda and with Ferrari. Um, I've done some amazing stuff with Ferrari the last couple of years. I had a chance to do their Corsa Pelota uh, advanced up in, 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 uh, in Canada. Um, I just did their 48 Pista, which is their latest uh, hot rod uh, down at uh, in Miami at Homestead. That thing is a missile. Um, absolutely. And I did, I got to do an ice driving program in the GTC four Lusso. Oh, incredible. Uh, I mean, throwing a $400,000 V12 Ferrari around an ice racing track is, it's just a twilight zone kind of thing. Where did that take place? Also in Canada. Yeah. Amazing. Up in Quebec. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Outside Montreal. I guess that's where they have the Porsche one too. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I'm primarily a vintage car enthusiast, but there is something nice about uh, getting in something fast and modern and throwing it around a racetrack with, you know, with some professional uh, instruction. Yeah. Very much a, I'm a hack driver, just like I'm a hack writer. But uh, when I grow up, that's what I'd love to do. So <laughs> be a race car driver or an astronaut, you know, that kind of thing. So you still have the 5 Series, your first yeah, car. Yeah, it's uh, a little worse for wear these days. But uh, when I finish up my current project, I think I'll probably pull it out and do a restoration. In the current project, current is. project is a '67 uh, Porsche 912. I was just out in LA. Um, Color, it was, it's, it's green. Irish green. Irish green. Uh, I was just out in LA. I'm having my motor and transmission built by John Benton at uh, Benton Performance out there. He's doing a 1.7 liter twin spark conversion on the motor. Nice. Which will hop it up quite a bit. Uh, and he also uh, made some custom seats for me, and uh, helping me with some of the performance upgrades. And then I'm having the car. Uh, fully restored and uh, full rotisserie and all that stuff here in Long Island. Seats are changing shape or material. Yeah, putting, or? I, I'll have to show you a picture when we get off this. It's uh, they're they're vintage style sports seats. So I'm, I had the original, you know, horsehair seats in there, which just have no bolsters at all and houndstooth. You'd think. Uh, I'm sorry. They are, it is houndstooth. Yeah. I, it was gonna be no. Hang on. I was going to do Houndstooth. When I first bought the car, that's what I spec'd out. Okay. I think it's been a little bit overplayed. So at the last, the last decision I made was to switch it to Herringbone. So it's not your traditional black and white Houndstooth. It is brown and black checked Herringbone. Oh, man. I can't wait to see this They're photo. They're really cool. I, I got to sit in them when I was out in L.A. last week. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and he's putting uh, two-stage heating elements in, in the seat for me. 
Oh, because yeah, you're here. Because I live in you know the northeast. The northeast. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. I, I mean, I had no idea you could even do that. How cool is that? <laughs> Driving a six, sixty-seven Porsche with heated seats. Uh, yeah, and then I have a daily driver, uh, which is a E thirty-nine M five. That's the daily these days. And by by daily, I mean I drive it maybe three times a month, maybe. That's a fun car. That's, that's a, my favorite body style M five. I wanted one pretty desperately when I was a teenager. Came out when I think when I was sixteen or seventeen years old, and I remember it was a seventy-two thousand dollar car. Might as well have been eleven million dollars. Eleven, yeah, and it was what four or four fifty horsepower, uh, four hundred horse, four hundred, yeah, sixty-five pound-feet torque, something like that. Five-liter V eight. It sounds pounds. amazing. Sounds great. Um, you know, growing up in Vermont, I, that was about half the value of our home. Um, <laughs> which is never going to happen. And, uh, I actually bought that car having never driven one. Uh, I just knew that it was everything I wanted. I'd driven a 540i and I'd driven a Z8. So if you put the two together, that's what you got. But, uh, I had never actually driven an E39 M5. I just knew for 20 years that that's what I wanted. Now, are you running that more or less stock or have it, you, you know, it's manipulated funny. suspension? Or I modify pretty much everything that I drive. When I bought that car, I, I, I dug deep. You know, what could I do to this thing? Yeah, I could do exhaust. I could do wheels. Doesn't really need this. Doesn't really. You know what I ended up with? Floor mats. I got some tire. I, I got some like weather tech. That's all it fucking needs, man. That thing is still a world class sedan. That's awesome. Yeah. Have you and you've tracked that? Uh, no, never. Not okay, not yet. got it. Uh, that's not true. I did parade laps in it. <laughs> gotcha. No, I, it's a little heavy for a track car. You could do that if you wanted, but uh, I think I'll leave that to something lighter. Sure, that that's fair. Um, do you have any Grail watch, Grail car combination? Not necessarily that they have to go together. That's not what I meant. But what's your Grail watch? What's your Grail car? Well, you know, uh, it sounds, sounds. Or do you already own them? I, you know, I don't really have a Grail watch. Um. I've come to realize that in the last few years. It's not because I already own them. It's not that there aren't a lot of watches I'd really like to own. There are. It's that I no longer feel the need to go hunting something so specific that I can't live without it, that that's the one. I love watches. I change my watch several times a day. Uh, and I also get to work with some of the coolest vintage watches in the world every day at my office. Yeah, I'm sure that helps. So it does help. Are there some watches that I just would love to get my hands on? Sure. But I don't think I have a Grail watch. Uh, and as for cars, it, it would be hard to name one. Uh, you know, my, my ultimate goal here is to buy a little piece of land up near a racetrack somewhere and build a big garage and a small house. So there's a lot of cars I like to fill that garage with. But I'm currently absolutely obsessed with the Austin Healey 100. Um, I'm taking some inspiration again from, from Bradley Price at Autodromo, who... Uh, has a very successful um, career in, in vintage sports car racing. Uh, that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to, to build a 100-4 race car and uh, go have some fun with that. I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful car. Um, British Roadster. On the contemporary side, I have to say that the, the C7 Corvette is spectacular. Um, that's one of the just absolute best contemporary cars I've had the opportunity to drive and aside from the fact that it would make me a Corvette owner uh, I can't think of any reason not to buy one so <laughs> I've been thinking about that um, yeah I mean I'd, I'd still love a Z8 
even though I have the M5, it's just such a magnificent thing. It's so unique. There's no car that looks like a Z8. It's so special, you know, and uh, I got to... There is kind of a Zagato feel to it, I think, aesthetically. Yeah, it's a little bubbly. Yeah. Yeah, I I had an opportunity to sit... I I had a chance to sit and get drunk with with Henrik Henrik Fisker, uh, with Ted Gashu at... uh, I was at the Quail a few years ago, and sort of pick his brain about that whole project. It was, it's a great, it's a great story and it's a great car. It's a great car. I think with age, you know, I used to do a lot of dumb things and street race and all that stuff when I was younger. And with age comes a, you know, I still like to go fast, but I'd prefer to do that on the track. And there is something about having a big GT car and just enjoying every minute of the, of the time behind the wheel with some nice, comfortable suspension and seats and uh, amenities, but also just great looks and a wonderful driving experience, which I think is is missing from a lot of the current BMW lineup, which is sad. Um, so many cars these days look identical. I can't. I mean, I can't tell the difference. And I will say this on the record: I have a uh, my my M5 is down with electrical drain at the moment, so I have a, a loner 2019 330i X Drive. It's fucking horrible. <laughs> it's like a refrigerator. It's got 240 horsepower turbo four or something all-wheel drive um, yeah it does not hand it it's does not handle it does not move that quickly and it is all about infotainment like i look i, can, I haven't found the odometer yet can't find it <laughs> um and when i went to look at the tack the other day i was listening to 80s on eight on sirius but the way the dashboard works it puts all your infotainment and overlaps the tack so i go to look at the tack and i see kylie minogue's face looking at me on the dashboard and that's just totally unacceptable to me. And uh, See, this is why we need self-driving cars. Cause we're so distracted by all the technology in them now. I guess if that's the way it's going, I mean, good God. Uh, and then I, uh, I was out in LA, uh, and, uh, Mazda gave me a CX five, which is sort of their midsize crossover. It's a better car than the three thirty I without question. And, and you're not even paid to say this. I am not being paid at all. <laughs> in fact, I'm probably gonna have to pay somebody cause I did say that. Uh, no, I think that the reality is, you know, you and I are similar age and, you know, growing up when we did, there was a massive performance, uh, differentiation between your average import, uh, average American car, and then the, the BMW, Mercedes, Audis, Porsches of the world. There was a massive difference. The M5 was, the E39 M5 was in a league of its own when that car came out. Um, today, most cars are pretty damn good. You know, between safety legislation and the trickle down of technology. Yeah, it's turbochargers I mean, and everything. engines and, and braking systems and suspension systems and lighting systems and blah, blah, blah. Most cars are on a pretty even keel. Most consumer grade cars are on a pretty even keel. So it does make sense that it comes down to how nice the seats and sound systems and Apple, iPlay, whatever that is. That kind of thing does seem to matter to most consumers. But driving is no longer, you know, the experience of driving is no longer differentiated from mark to mark, which is sad. You know, you really have to get something special to have a different experience. And the reality is that that 488 Pista is one of the most exciting cars I've ever driven. I never want to drive that on the street again. There is no pass and go. There is no collecting $200. I will go straight to jail. It doesn't go 25 miles an hour. It goes 90. Now, do those start in second and you have to downshift to first? Uh, you should start in second, I, I, you know, but you can do whatever. It's just uh, the roads and the laws haven't caught up to that tech, 
but I guess what I'm saying is a differentiation in the height, the really high performance stuff is so extreme now that it, it doesn't make sense for the road anymore. Whereas in, you know, 2001, you know, an Audi S4, a BMW M5, and a Mercedes, you know, E-Class AMG. These were really next level, but still usable in the real world. Yeah, I was going to say, because those were built for real roads, you know, like even the Autobahn has a little crack in it every once in a while. Yeah. So, you know, it's like yeah. trying to drive a Ferrari that's I mean, the like, new M5 is spectacular, but you can't really do anything in real life that I can't do in my 17-year-old M5. I mean, I, I I don't know how people drive Ferraris, Lambos, other than with, like, the nose lift up all the time in places like Los Angeles. Sure. I mean, I drive a GTI every yeah. day. Love it. DSG or stick? No, it's stick. Oh, for good. sure. Good. Yeah. Um, I'd feel like a fraud with standard <laughs> H if, uh, <laughs> if I had a, a DSG currently. Yeah. Um, I've had one in the past, though. Yeah. And they're super fun. Really, really efficient, really quick shift, really comfortable and, and great. Yeah. Convenient for traffic in California, for sure. Definitely. But, man, like I had my car lowered on Sport Springs. And in, in L.A., it's in a GTI, it's bad. Like I cannot imagine being in, you know, a Huracan or something. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it's I mean, crazy. Those sort of bonkers hypercars. Look, of course, they're cool. I'm like. Dude, I like shiny, fast, sexy things that are expensive, of course, but I have very little interest in, in owning any of that. I think, you know, maybe an Aston Martin or a Z8 or something like that. Uh, I think the 991 was spectacular. Uh, a very good friend of mine uh, just got his paint to sample Irish Green uh, GT3 Touring, and I flew down to Phoenix and spent a weekend with him and driving that thing around. It's, it's spectacular. Was that Eli? Uh, well, I was, with, I was hanging with Eli, yeah. uh, but as a, as a mutual friend of actually all of ours. Sure. Yeah, so that was great. That's a great spec. Uh, Eli let me drive his uh, 997 GT3 RS, which he's just done some insane things to. And I think I actually squealed uh, under under heavy throttle. That thing is bonkers. But then, you know, falling right behind me is the GT3 Touring, you know, and uh, my friend Kumar is like basically sipping a, a macchiato, you know, keeping up with us the whole time with no drama, listening to Bach. You That's know, amazing. 12 speaker surround sound. <laughs> and I, I think the reality is you either have to go a little bit older and have something that's balls out that you can feel that really guttural experience or something, you know, just a little bit more sophisticated. Sports cars today almost don't make sense if they have all the power. Um, the only topic we haven't talked about, we got to touch on it, is this mustache. It's taken on a life of its own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's just who I am now, Wesley. How so? What? How did it grow? Other than literally. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I. Where did this personality come from? Where did from? it come from? Yeah. Well, I think the the reality is that I've worn a goatee since I could grow a goatee. You know, since my early twenties or whatever, and I've never really done anything other than that. Uh, my sideburns changed a lot. You know, I used to have a real like serious. Nine oh two one oh days, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, those those were lost in more recent years. The mustache started last Halloween. Um, we were doing a fundraiser event, actually with Oris. Uh, we did a costume party, and uh, naturally, I, I just had to go as as Tom Selleck, Magnum PI. So I got my Detroit Tigers hat, uh, bought the official shirt, uh, got the team ring, you know, and uh, had my GMT master. So all that was left was the mustache. So I, I did that. 
And did then, you get your hands on a Ferrari from Classic Cars or I anything? Didn't, I didn't, but uh, it's probably good because it was a fairly boozy night. Uh, they do have a, a 308, though, so it would have would have fit with the image. Um, and the next morning, uh, you know, November 1st, wake up a little hungover, and my fiancé looks over me and goes, you know we're having our engagement photos taken in three days, and you got to get rid of that thing. I was like, why didn't you tell me this before I cut off my facial hair and grew this thing? Um, so I had three days to grow back my goatee. I'm sort of squeezing. I can't get out, you know. And the rest of it was Photoshop. Uh, but I, I essentially, I only got to experience the mustache. I've never done Movember or whatever that stuff is. Um, I know I live in New York, so it just makes me look like a hipster. But I was sort of enjoying it, and I only had it for, for a day. So um, I let the goatee come back. And then right before SIHH this year, the big trade show in, in Geneva, I was just feeling sort of irreverent. And I, I wanted to fuck with the Swiss a little bit. And, you know, the Swiss have difficult sense of humor sometimes. They don't know what to laugh at and what they just have to be polite about. So the, the morning of, of my flight to SIHH, I just, I just went straight mustache. And I joke that I'm just trying to scare my fiancé away before the, the wedding date, uh, but also wanted to just play with the, friend, uh, with the, the Swiss French a little bit. So uh, it just hasn't gone away since January. And then uh, I decided to throw a mohawk uh, into the mix Again, maybe these are just the last decisions I'll be able to make completely on my own before I'm <laughs> right. I'm married. But I won't look like this come uh, the end of September. But for the summer, enjoying it while it lasts. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, that's awesome. Well, listen, man, this has been super fun. Um, always great to catch up. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to add or promote for that matter? Not at all. Not at all. I, I thank you so much for coming and, and hanging out here and. You know, to anybody who uh, who listens to us ramble on, uh, you know, we'd love to have you come by and visit us in New York anytime. You can check out our website, Instagram, drop us a note. We're, we really like uh, doing exactly what we just did this morning and bullshitting about cars and watches and whiskeys and all the kind of... Uh, yeah, we bar- we just grazed the surface. Well, it's a little the, early. We're still drinking whiskey. coffee. Yeah, we'll, that's true. we'll crack a bottle now. But uh, <laughs> yeah, man. What's the URL for you? So everybody uh, Analogship.com at analog shift and email us at info at analog shift.com. But, uh, we do, we do love great old things and, uh, do the treasure hunting and storytelling, you know, with a, with a smile on every day. So sweet Thanks, jeans man. and whiskey. You got it. And there mustaches. All right, James. <laughs> All right. Take care. Cheers. Thank you. Really want to thank James once again for having me in the analog shift offices. Always a pleasure to talk to him. Uh, the guys just to crack up and always enjoy it. So, uh, James, uh, hopefully you're listening. Let's grab uh, some scotch or some bourbon next time I'm in the city. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by Clear Audio. That's C-L-E-E-R audio.com. The headphones I'm using to record are just really second to none. I just got back from a trip uh, to North Carolina where I wore them on the plane. They have noise-canceling uh, capabilities, which are just obviously quintessential for crying babies. And uh, music, as always, provided by the talented Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful. Until next time, uh, Wesley Smith here for Standard H. Thanks so much for listening. See ya.